0: I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. My guest today is CEO, Skylar Ditchfield. Skylar is the co-founder and CEO of GeoLink's The fastest growing WISP in America. With both a passion and dedication to closing the U.S. digital divide, Skylar is determined to bring connectivity to every unconnected anchor institution in America over the next seven years. Skylar is passionate about cultivating the best company culture around, one that combines respect, collaboration, and a best idea wins mantra. Skylar Ditchfield, welcome into the corner office.
1: Thank you. appreciate being here.
0: Great to have you here today. So we'd like to start these talking a little bit about their early years. Uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what your family life was like.
1: Absolutely. Uh, well, I grew up uh, divorced parents, so I grew up with my mom up until about third grade, at which point um, she wasn't able to afford us continuing to live on our own. We moved in with my grandparents and my uncle right around that time, and I lived on a 80- Acre uh, Orange Ranch, actually, wow. with them and uh, went to school not too far away. Was that down in Southern California or what, what part of the country? Mm-hmm. It was, yeah, Southern California. Yep. So had a lot of room to explore and go out there and be imaginative. But also, you know, I think at the time, looking back on it, I was a little resentful of not being in a neighborhood where all the other kids right. were to play. So I felt a bit lonely, but I think it lent to a lot of imagination and whatnot. And I didn't have any siblings. So, you know, sometimes I was a... a out to entertain myself for the most part.
0: (laughs) That sounds like you had a uh, uh, um, multi-generational family. That's kind of interesting with uncles and aunts and grandparents. Did they have an influence on you growing up?
1: I did, yeah. So, um, you know, my grandmother was a big influence. She was very stern, uh, you know, good but good guiding force when I was younger. And my uncle was absolutely fantastic. He set very, very good examples to me as a man and uh, as, you know... um, work ethic he's a guy yeah. that worked uh, day in and day out on the ranch you know 16 hour days sometimes more seven days a week and you know after you know being a straight a student in med school ucla to stay out of the vietnam war he he did that and he was just a guy that that did everything for everyone else so he awesome. was a, a really amazing example for me
0: what were some of the lessons that you learned from your uncle
1: hard work um mm. dedication honesty um doing for others uh you know almost i'd say to a fault he does more for others than for himself but um you know really really set a a wonderful example of what a a really admirable human being is
0: cool this is your mother's brother i assume yes yes it was and did mom work as well
1: my mom worked yeah she worked uh as a horse trainer at at a local school she did different things here and there painted houses a little bit of this and that you know what um whatever she could really do from, from you know, time to time to keep us afloat, right? Yeah, yeah. Who were some of the other early influencers in your life? Uh, my aunt, my, my mom's sister. So um, my co-founder is actually her son, my cousin. Oh. And uh, we were 10 days apart in terms of being born. So we, we grew up together and it was the closest thing I had to a brother. So we, nice. we were very close. I spent a lot of time at her house growing up. And, um, you know, so she was a, a big part of my life as well.
0: Yeah. Tell us about your school years. Were you a good student?
1: I was. uh, So elementary school, I went to a small elementary school, about 120 kids. Uh, Good memories there growing up. Um, Good student. I think I was second in the school in terms of our testing every year. I was always one kid that was one notch ahead of me by So education (laughs) was important.
0: Was that something that mom and, you know, the the extended relatives, uh, uh, you know, kind of modeled for you? Or was it something that you kind of took on your own?
1: Um, I, you know, I enjoyed testing. I loved being tested and, you know, finding out how I did. I was never a big fan of homework or projects or things (laughs) like that. I felt like it was honestly kind of a waste of time. I like, if I mastered something once I I wanted to move on, I didn't want to do it repetitively. But my uncle was one that always sat down with me and made sure, are are you doing your homework? Are you doing your reports? Mm. Do you need help? And, uh, was there to help me through that. So I'd say, you know, I was a good student through, through elementary school and things, changed a little bit, you know, through middle school and high school, we can go into that, I guess. Too.
0: <laughs> Those teenage years can be brutal. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Not much contact with dad then after mom and dad split up.
1: Um, I did, you know, I saw him, they, they had their issues that they, you know, were working out in terms of how they got along. And that, you know, definitely took a toll on my relationship with him, but I ended up moving in with him when I was 14. Oh, you did. And that, was, that was really, really fantastic. And, uh, Got to live with him and, and his dad, uh, who was a wonderful, wonderful man as wow. well. Again, and again, a multi
0: generational uh, experience there. Interesting. And, and what did dad do? What was his uh, line of work?
1: My dad, well, he'd been in multiple things. He was, he was going to be a doctor when he was younger, went through med school and all that and residency, and then became a rock and roll photographer and toured with wow. a lot of big bands in the 70s. And then uh, he went into real estate and did that for pretty much uh, the rest of his career and had a, a real estate office uh, in, in town. So he had the entrepreneurial spirit, I'd say, there as well. Yeah,
0: sounds like it. And did he stay uh, also in Southern California then? Was he nearby?
1: Yeah, yeah, he was. He, he was
0: in the, in the same town and. What about activities outside of class, sports, music, theater, politics?
1: You know, my, my grandmother um, pushed me into music when I was in elementary mm. school. I, I played trumpet, and uh, I think it was a good experience. It really wasn't my thing, but she was always all for experiences and, and broadening your horizons. So yeah, um, she was very much all about that. And um, going into middle school, I, I abandoned that, and um, I, I didn't really find my way into anything yet, but... Uh, When I moved in with my dad, I had a a desire to play basketball, and he, my dad was really good at sports. He uh, was the first guy drafted to Major League Baseball out of our Ah, uh, high school for the Royals and uh, ended up making triple A ball before he tore his shoulder, but Hmm. um, he uh, started coaching me in basketball, and um, that became a a real passion of mine, which still is today, but injuries uh, you know, plagued me, I would say, by the time I got to 18, pretty much there on. So do, you didn't play college ball? No, I was hoping to, but I had a very debilitating back injury that summer um, when I was 18, and uh, it's still something that plagues me today that I'm, I'm working with and considering another surgery on here soon. But uh, take I, did, it I out. Yeah, I got into <laughs> a, lot, a lot into into weightlifting um, th- uh, that same summer, going into 10th grade, and that's been something that's been a passion for the rest of my life. I've stuck with. Uh, uh, the weight room built a nice gym at my office, gym at my home, and that's something I just feel uh, drive a lot of physical strength that translates into mental strength and um, keeps you healthy and lets you burn off the stress of you know that you deal with with a growing business, right. and, you know, being right. leader of a company. So that's something that I've I've really had a, a very strong passion for over the years. Awesome, awesome. What about entrepreneurial things? Uh,
0: anything you did younger? You know, you, it doesn't sound like you were. <laughs> managing a paper route, not living in a neighborhood, but uh, were there other things that you did during, uh, you know, those early years to, you know, uh, generate some spending money?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, funny you say that is I actually did want to have a paper route, but due to to my location, it was uh, not not really available to me. So um, from a young age, uh, I went over to my, like I said, my cousin's house a lot and he lived in a neighborhood. So we sold things on the side of the road, whether it was lemonade, hot dogs. Ah, Cool. Uh, We painted the little oak balls off trees you name it what we could get our hands (laughs) on we sold it and um we went door to door um always with that entrepreneurial drive doing anything I could to, to make money um we had a little playhouse in the backyard that we'd Paint different objects, make little handmade things, and try to sell sell to our own relatives there. Sure. Usually, usually they had to pay a premium versus the real industry. You know? <laughs> That's the way it works. <laughs> Very elastic in terms of price, right? <laughs>
0: exactly. <laughs> yeah. And what did you uh, spend your spending money on? Was there uh, certain vices that you had at that age, Were you encouraged to save and put it aside?
1: You know, I, I had a tendency to saving. Um, I'm sure there's things that I probably did spend it on, but. It was usually like save up and save for something significant and good. Um, and then, uh, you know, as I went along, uh, I found an opportunity. I remember in sixth grade, uh, the school had eliminated um, sweets, and uh, I decided I would start bringing them to school and selling them at a premium. Ah, that's <laughs> great. So I adopted the pricing model of the you know the local theater, which was like four or five dollars for a, an item that cost you maybe fifty cents, and I was making it you know twenty. 20 bucks a day, which was fantastic. But I got got shut down pretty quick there. I can
0: imagine. Yeah, right. Right. Candy at school probably didn't go well, very well together with the administration. The kids lined up
1: and that was the problem. The line started getting a little too long.
0: Got it. Got it. What about any jobs uh, during high school or maybe your early years in college? Did you, uh, you know, work an hourly wage anywhere or was it really the entrepreneurial things that drove your uh, extra income?
1: Yeah, no, uh, I definitely want a job. So as I got into high school, I wanted to, you know, make money any way possible. I did, I I bought uh, laptop computers off of online classifieds, which was America, America online at the time. Sure. And, um, I found that there was about a 30 to 50% markup selling them in the local paper classifieds at the time, just due to the different competition. So I was reselling those. Um, I took my first job, I think it was age 14, as soon as I became eligible to work. Uh, with a friend of mine working at a henna tattoo place out of a guy's garage, where ah. you would pack bags and oils and different things along those lines, and I think I was making three eighty-five an hour, which was minimum wage at the time. Right, right. And I remember after doing it for a little bit, I made him an offer. I said, "Look, you're pay- we're filling X number of bags per hour on average. Can you just pay me per bag instead of per hour?" And he said, "Sure." Well. That motivated me to haul ass. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And after a couple of weeks, I was making eight, nine bucks an hour. And I mean, I was going at a breakneck speed. It probably wasn't <laughs> sustainable, but he decided <laughs> no longer did he want to pay that, which I thought was actually a, uh, not, not a good idea on his part because I was right. producing you know, more more per hour than he was getting before. And he was paying the same amount per bag. But when he took that away and went back to the hourly model, I lost my motivation. And that was... Another reminder to me of the, you know, being an entrepreneur, you really get to control your own destiny and earning versus working for someone.
0: Very much so. Well, was it kind of predestined that you'd go to college, uh, Skylar, or what kind of was the motivation around that?
1: You know, I really never had anyone pushing me to college, and I didn't know what my route was um, and where I wanted to go. I was always very interested in computers, networking. That's something I had worked with. uh, growing up, you know, as, as a hobby and whatnot with my cousin and, um, friends and and things along those lines. I did some web design work here and there towards the later years of high school for a Mm. local company and, um, some email marketing when, when spam marketing was still allowed (laughs) back, back then. Um, but didn't know anything about college. So I went to local junior college, um, Really had no direction. Uh, I think the only class I focused on was weightlifting at the time. And I did get a good grade in biology and English. And uh, that's about it. Um, about, I think it was into the second semester, I got a job offer for MCI WorldCom through a friend up oh, in Silicon 10. Valley and working as a network engineer up there. And uh, I flew up and ended up taking that job, and there's a little more to that story, obviously, but um, the pay at the time seemed astronomical to me, because everything was going boom with, with the dot-com thing right. in, a good, in a good way. And what year was that, Scott? 99, uh, 2000. Okay, just right at the brink, yeah. Yep, <laughs> it wasn't too much longer that that imploded, <laughs> right, as you know, right. and, the, and their bankruptcy came, but uh, I did well there. I was promoted pretty quickly to Network Engineer three. But um, being the youngest guy in the facility, I, I took a, a pretty rough beating, I'll say, from the older guys, um, especially because I, I really understood the fundamentals of networking, even though I didn't have like the certifications and things that they right. had. Because a lot of people you find at the time there was such a deficit in the workforce up there, is that you had guys switching from careers like as different as construction, going and taking you know a nine-month class in Cisco routers, yeah, so, huge and,
0: pull, yeah, yeah,
1: and picking up a job because they could earn you know six figures very easily. And um, they understood, you know, the basics, but they understood understand the fundamentals. So there were things that I could do by knowing, you know, the fundamentals of networking that I could work at a much faster pace. And, um, you know, like I said, I, I'll spare you some of the four-letter words, but um, <laughs> I, I definitely took some, some verbal beatings while I was there. <laughs> I can imagine. Did you ever go back to college, finish it up? So when I came back, I actually uh, enrolled in some networking classes Mm -hmm. um i moved back back down to my hometown and um these were specific was this after the after the implosion of of worldcom yeah yeah Mm -hmm. this was 2000 uh late late 2000 maybe early 2001 roughly and um they had cisco certified networking classes which i enrolled and that piqued my interest because that's Mm. the platform i had been working on at mci and um i took a job at a local computer shop um, that was actually in the town that my business is in now, Camarillo, California. Right. And they had a, a business model that I found interesting. It was sell the highest quality computer at the guaranteed lowest price. So that didn't put mm. you in a pricing war with the, the budget Dell computers and those things out there. But if you were to make an apples-to-apples comparison, they guaranteed the lowest price. The fact of the matter was no one really built an apples-to-apples comparison computer. <laughs> Therefore, right. they were selling you know, 20 to 30, pr- 20, to 40% higher than others and getting a better profit margin. And, uh, you know, going down to 13 bucks an hour at that time was, you know, a huge drop in pay from where sure. i had been. And I, uh, <clears throat> remember on my second day at the job, I went to lunch and I sat and I thought, you know, I could do this and I can do it better. And, mm-hmm. and I decided not to go back to work and I left and I went home and I got started making my first flyer and I scrapped together 500 bucks and uh, I took out a, an ad in a local magazine and started my own computer repair company. And that was really the start of my first uh, real business. The entrepreneur came zooming back.
0: It did. It did. <laughs> did you hire people right away in that opportunity?
1: Well, I partnered with uh, a friend of mine that I had lost connection with, but had been friends with in high school that actually was in my Cisco networking class at right. Ventura College. And, uh, he loved the idea, wanted to do the same kind of business was actually tinkering with the idea of doing a computer repair and sales business at the time too. So, you know, I'm living in the back room of my dad's house at the time. Um, and, uh, we just launched it out of there and, uh, you know, got my first few computer sales, started doing some repairs, 25 bucks an hour recharging at the time, things started taking off and, uh. We knew we needed a a retail space, and we were in a small town of about 8,000 people, Mm -hmm. and uh, there was an old record and VHS store. And I remember I went over to the guy, and he was right on the corner of a busy street corner, and he had one little room that was 120 square feet, (laughs) all glass in the corner. I asked him if I could rent it from him, and he said, I'll make you a deal. All these VHSs, they're they're not selling or renting anymore. If you clean them all out and put them in my storage, I'll give you two months free rent, and then it's 150 bucks a month. And I said, deal.
0: Deal. Went, went and got some <laughs> friends and cleaned that
1: room out, and we I borrowed a few bucks here and there from people, and we stocked it with everything from, you know, recordable DVDs and CD, well, CDs, actually, at the time. I right. Thought, um, and different consumable items like that, because in the small town we were in, the the next closest town was about a 25, 30-minute drive, and those items really weren't available anywhere.
0: right. And right. I'll tell
1: you, the first month in business, we did $10,000 in sales, and I was blown away awesome that's great and that business was uh off and running at that point which uh ended up riding out till about 2005 2006
0: when was the first time you started managing people was it in that uh opportunity
1: it was um so not not too long after i want to say three or four months into running out of that little room the guy said look i'm 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 going out of business um do you want to take over the whole building which was about 900 square feet Mm. i said absolutely uh let's do it and um We stocked it up. I borrowed a little bit of money from my uncle and a couple other people, a couple thousand dollars to help stock it, and hired um, my first employee not there long after. had one or two employees for the first bit and ended up growing at the peak of that business when I exited in 2005. I think we had 11 employees.
0: Yeah, cool. What were some of those early lessons you learned in uh, management?
1: Um. You know, it's very different early on uh, to, like, where a business I have now where I have a 40,000-square-foot facility and, you know, 60 employees distributed all over. Um, There, you know, I was really working hand-in-hand, side-by-side with those people. And it was really, honestly, just picking people that you wanted to be around and be in a small, confined space with all day, but also knew the craft and knew the trade and and were honest, good people. So, um, you know, I had a few come and go just because we just kind of didn't mesh, I guess, what you would call culturally or... You know, socially, so to speak, right? Um, or, they, or they didn't do the job quite well. But uh, I found I could teach them as long as they had the right attitude. Um, and I think that's the main thing that translates today is the right attitude. Mm. You know, it doesn't matter if you've got all the skill sets or the knowledge, but if you've got the right attitude and you're willing to learn, that's that's what's going to make that person work.
0: Yeah, yeah. How would you say your leadership styles evolved over time, Scholar?
1: So my leadership style uh, has been. I I was never a person that wants to be forceful or, um, someone that wants to come down on people and, you know, set rigid, rigid ways that you have to work within. Um, I've been pretty loose and I've learned that that doesn't work always. And I've had to Hmm. be, be a little more rigid, you know, over the years and, and get to more structure than I, than I had initially with my smaller businesses. Right. So that, that's evolved. But, um, my, otherwise my management style really is, um, to enable people to be the best that they can be, I tell everyone, I don't want to be your boss. If I ever have to be your boss, something isn't working here. Um, you need to be able to do your job without, you know, being disciplined for not showing up on time or not getting things done on time, etc. That's just not going to work for me. Right. Um, I don't want to feel like I'm your boss. I don't want you to look at me that way. Obviously, we've got all got roles and different things to do, and when it comes down to it, I am going to, you know, dictate the direction of the company. But I want your input. Um, You know, there's one saying we have around here is "best idea wins." Hmm. You know, everyone from you know our entry level people to middle management to you know different levels of staff. We have ideas at geolinks.com email address they can send into. And uh, I'll tell you, you know, the best ideas come from the people that are in the trenches in their areas, and you want to give them a voice. And I've got to continually remind them of that because. Um, You know, I don't know what's going on in in some of the interworkings of finance or sales engineering or things along those lines. And until they bring those things up, I don't have an opportunity to fix them. So I I really just want to be relatable. Um, And to me, you know, you don't realize when you become unrelatable because you're still (laughs) the same person to yourself. Right, right. But uh, uh, last year, you know, when someone saluted me and said, hello, sir. And, you know, it really kind of struck me as the way things were changing, right?
0: <laughs> right, right. How do you decide if it's time to micromanage someone or, or stay out of the sandbox, so to speak?
1: That's a good question. And, you know, I've, I've I've had a few times where I've gotten into micromanaging people, trying to save them, so to speak. Mm, yeah. And it's because I like them on a personal level, but they were struggling in their job. And, I, and you know what? Every single time it hasn't worked out. Yeah. Uh, it's ended up just... Pro- prolonging the inevitable mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and um, so i i don't feel that it that it really works and i probably should have let them go sooner mm-hmm. i do believe that you need to give them a fair uh, analysis and let them know where, where they're where they're going wrong and give them a chance to fix that and if you can give them some help in that, in that direction but continual micromanagement i just don't feel works
0: so your style is more of kind of setting the general direction and hiring people that have the competencies and give them the Give them the rope to hang themselves or <laughs> give them enough uh, latitude to get the job done.
1: That's exactly right. Yep. Give them the rope to get, to get the job done or to hang themselves. That's
0: right. <laughs> One thing or the other. Yes. Let's talk a little bit about building culture. You know, you've done some amazing things, your entrepreneurial adventures from just a kid to, you know, your present day, uh, very successful company. What, what are your thoughts on, on building a company culture and you know, how do you go about doing so?
1: Well, you know, it comes down to the people. Uh, The people create your culture. Obviously, you got to set the tone and pick the right people. And when you get the wrong people, you need to get them out sooner than later. So, Mm. you know, like what I was talking to before of, you know, not wanting to be anyone's boss, wanting to enable them to do their jobs, give them the flexibility to come and go. I tell people, you know, if you need a personal day, take it. Uh, I I, I don't want to tell you that you can't get your job done another time or within these strict, rigid hours. Now, have I had people that have abused that over the years? Absolutely. The fact is you got to find those people, give them one chance to correct themselves. Everyone's due a second chance. But if they're you know, rubbing people the wrong way or just not the right personality you want in the building, they're toxic. You know, a, a, bad, right. a bad personality will infect a lot more people than a good personality will. Sure will. Just like yeah. the old saying goes, you know, one negative customer tells seven people and you're lucky if a happy customer tells anyone. Um, That's right. You've got to get them out. So it's really key on picking the right people because um, mm-hmm. those people create your culture and, and they contribute to your culture. And I think really enabling them to contribute to the culture is paramount. And, and I had a good learning lesson uh, this last year. We had, we had outgrown our smaller building that was about eight thousand square feet where we were all packed in together, shoulder to shoulder, and. Um, we felt like everyone was getting on each other's nerves, being on top of each other, but we were working really effectively and really efficiently because there was something about being in those tight quarters that, that created that startup drive and mentality and that, yeah you know, the culture yeah, ways right? yeah So I moved to this 40,000 square foot, amazing building. We got an indoor basketball court, a gym, a movie theater, <laughs> you know, a game room, pool tables, video games, you name it. And I thought, well, great. Let's spread everyone out over the building. This is our gift back and it'll even boost the culture even more. What I found out was by spreading everyone out so much, we lost a lot of accountability. Mm, We lost the intrinsic motivation of being up on top of one another and productivity took a huge plummet. Wow. And that wasn't what I expected. And after a few months, we realized what was going on and... One, there had been a few bad hires and growing very quick, and we had to do a little weeding uh, at that time. But I took everyone, and I moved them all into one-third of the building, and that's where we're at now. Mm. And putting everyone closer together, I'll tell you, that fixed it really quick.
0: Made a huge difference, yeah. It's funny you say that. I remember coming back to the States after a long corporate career abroad, and I worked for a middle market company up in Santa Barbara, just up the road from you. And uh, it was a cubicle type of an organization. And I'd never really worked in that before. You know, there's a couple of managers that have offices, but most everybody was out in the cubes. And, you know, I kind of questioned it a little bit because I had been working in situations where there was a lot more privacy. And he said, "Brant, this is the CEO founder. He said, "Brant, it's like this. You know, you might overhear a conversation and it's not that you mean to, but you may get an idea. And uh, there's nothing wrong with going up to that person and say, you know, I didn't really mean to listen to your phone conversation, but, you know, that part that you're trying to find, <laughs> I think I know where it is. And, you know, that generates business. And I think that's y- your, your situation is proof to that. I think if people are in that close proximity, there's more of an opportunity to share and develop and learn
1: um, and, and build that culture. Yep. I, I completely agree. And, you know, early days up until just the last year or two, I sat right across from my sales Pit. And uh, I yeah. would hear yeah. calls going right, hear calls going wrong, and have the opportunity to correct those live, uh, pretty much right. all the time. And that was a, a real good thing. And I do miss that a little bit, being you know in an office, you know, uh, with a door closed sure. now sometimes. But like you said, putting people close together really gives that opportunity to allow them to collaborate, listen, and, yeah. and feed off each other's energy. Right.
0: Right, particularly in the sales environment. Yeah.
1: But what would you say
0: is uh, unusual or unique about your culture at GeoLink Skylar?
1: Um, you know, the, the best idea wins mantra. I I think, Mm -hmm. um, you won't find anyone pulling rank here, uh, or those types of things. There's, I've never seen anyone shouting, yelling, uh, degrading Mm -hmm. anyone, putting other people down, etc. And like I've told you, you know, I've been a part of that on the receiving end, uh, myself firsthand in big companies, um, and, and smaller companies over the years. I worked a lot at, before I became an entrepreneur, I think I worked 14 different jobs. Granted, many of those stints were days or weeks because I knew I wanted to go back to being an entrepreneur. But um, I think the culture is very flexible and that's that's yeah. what I like to allow. I mean, these people have lives, we all have lives. And, and to put the rigidity on it, you can't take a day here, you can't do this, you can't do that, it's about getting your work done. And I like to say, if you get your work done, I don't care what you do. If somehow you're Superman and you can work five hours a week and, and get outstanding results, well, God bless you, fantastic. you know. But that's not, that's not the reality, obviously. Um, right. And we've got tons of people here that put in extra hours. I've had more people than I can count on one hand turn down raises um, in this company. So I can't put my finger on everything that I think is right, but I think it's just giving respect. You know, mutual respect across the board has created that buy-in to being a part of a team that you want to contribute to and be a part of.
0: You've talked a lot about the importance of people and it's no big surprise you're successful because of it. But tell us a little bit about what you look for when you're making bets on the people you invest in.
1: Yeah, you know, that's when we, we're always trying to refine and get better at, especially after we've seen mm-hmm. a bad hire or, or something along those lines. Um, and we started doing something a couple of years ago that was the directive of, of my chairman and first investor was a, a what we call an assessment center. And it's putting people through live scenarios and it becomes a panel interview to begin with, um, and then going through what some live scenarios would be in their typical job role. And then there's some questions in there that are geared toward hypothetical situations within the company that help judge character as well. And, and I remember when we hired um, our, our president about, he became, C, he was CTO first and became president about three or four, four years ago. And he, he passed away just a year ago. Uh, last couple months ago. Great guy, absolute wonderful guy. Became one of my best friends, but he went through, I remember, and being, you know, a uh, executive level role, the the parts that determined what we felt to be, you know, his honesty quotient, so to speak. Um, And uh, I remember my chairman, who's a uh, psychiatrist or psychologist, I'm sorry, um, said, I've never seen anyone score higher. And I'm going to botch exactly what the question was. There was a multitude of questions, but there was one of them that was, Say one of the partners of the company comes to you and says, you know, I think this is being done wrong by this other partner. Um, I would like to just talk to you about this. Let's figure out how we can handle it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and his answer, uh, how do you handle this? What are you going to do about it? Are you going to work with him on solving it? Are you going you know, There were multiple choices, but, you know, those are the potential multiple choices. And his answer was, bring everyone into the room, bring everything to light and make everyone talk about it and bring everything in the air and don't hide anything. And um, that was the best answer you could possibly get because it showed complete transparency and honesty. And he he proved to probably be one of the most honest men I ever knew in my entire life. And that was fantastic. So those are the qualities we look for is really the desire to learn, um, honesty, integrity, um, and the desire to put the effort in and be a part of this team. Like I said, we can teach some of the other stuff. 90% of the people we have here never been in telecom before. And um, you know that actually, I think, is a, uh, a benefit because we, we did hire some people that had long-term telecom experience thinking that was going to be a solution when we could afford them. And we found out, unfortunately, they brought a bad, bad habits along, old habits, habits of big carriers, and it was literally impossible to unwind those.
0: Yeah, interesting. You know, the middle market company I was referring to was in the telecommunications space, up in Santa Barbara, and I had never worked in telecom either. And I remember telling that to uh, this founder CEO. He says, "Brant, don't worry about that. We're really not in the telecom business. We're in the customer service business."
1: That makes a lot of sense. And you know,
0: and I knew I knew a lot about customer service, having worked for for Procter and Disney. But uh, yeah, I think that's really important to understand your role. Do you have like mission and vision statements, Skylar? Is that something that's big in your organization or is it more kind of a word of mouth in terms of what the company stands for?
1: No, we actually, we do have one and that's treat every one of our clients and interactions as you'd like to be treated. And that's the no, same way go. I live my life. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, if you're going to work with someone, put yourself on the other side and treat them how you'd like to like to see, feel that experience work out. And yeah, I think if awesome. you do that every time it, it's, 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 a, it's going to win. Even if that person doesn't, doesn't receive it, you know, the right way. Kyle, I just feel like you've been very,
0: very generous with your time, and we've just got one last question for you, something we like to ask all the CEOs, and that's, you know, what career and life advice would you give to someone who has their eyes on the corner office or, or in your case, wants to be an entrepreneur?
1: Absolutely. Well, I've never worked my way up to the corner office, you know, through a traditional one. So <laughs> you've created it. I, right? I've created it, so <laughs> I, I can't tell you that one. I have worked with people sure. that I have, but in regards to being an entrepreneur, I think yeah. you need to have deep belief in yourself. You need Mm -hmm. to understand all facets of your company. You need to be able to number one, sell your own product when you're getting off the ground. And I'm referring to myself and, you know, not having much startup capital where you can't go hire people. So you need to be able to sell your own product. Uh, you need to learn and know your accounting, at least your basic accounting because you're going to be dealing with money. And if you don't keep your, your cash straight, you're going to be out of money quick. Um, after that, I would say whatever you forecast and project to be your turning point where you turn cash positive, triple that time frame and make sure you can make it to get to there because never, nothing will go as you expect. <laughs> and so you, you will have a lot more pitfalls than you plan for, but no, there is no failure until you choose to fail. So if you're going through a tough patch every single time, you know, I've gotten down and bummed out, and, but I've pulled myself out of that and motored along and got through and once you come out the other side, there really is something better on the other side, including the lesson that you learned from being, you know, uh, you know, going through that rough patch as well.
0: Well, Scott, once again, thank you so much for
1: your time today. Oh, it was my pleasure, Brent. Thank you for having me.